thank you for tuning in to episode 127 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father, four ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people like you reclaim your lives from pornography addiction. If anybody that you know, if you, if anybody that you come into contact with is struggling to put pornography addiction behind them once and for all, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you will find a um, short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And you can maybe even tell in the opening there, I really struggle with, uh, there's been a whole lot of data, and I've done a couple of podcasts on this around just the word addiction. Is pornography addiction um, real? Is it, uh, is it addiction? Is there such thing as sex addiction? And I was just interviewed about that again last week. And I don't mean to sound so cavalier, so uh, uncaring. It's actually the opposite that I really do care of whatever anyone wants to call it. If it's something that you want to put behind you once and for all, please go to pathbackrecovery.com. I, I actually get asked often, can someone overcome even just continually turning back to pornography when they are bored or hungry or angry or lonely or tired or whenever they don't feel connected to their uh, to their spouses, to their kids, to their job, to their health, to their faith? And the answer is yes. So it takes some more intentional work and uh, and it is not just the normal behavioral things, you know, go run outside or um, write a letter or call a friend. I mean, those behavioral things are all important, but there, there are some really good tools that you can find, especially in my Pathback program, that will help you not turn to that as a coping mechanism, even just from pure boredom. I call them crimes of opportunity. So please go back to go to pathbackrecovery.com and you'll find out a whole lot more about that and my program. And please visit Virtual Couch on Instagram. Now you can find the Virtual Couch page on Facebook as well. Before, there was just a Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist page, but uh, now you've got a Virtual Couch page as well as the Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist page. And uh, what the heck, go like them both. And you can also find the Virtual Couch um, on YouTube. And today I am recording. This is, uh, if you haven't watched one of the YouTube videos, I say that like there's going to be all kinds of things. You'll see my bookcase in the background. I wish you could smell this new candle that I got uh, recently. It is the Island Lily and Pineapple, and it just smells amazing. But you can go to the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. You can watch this video. And there's a reason why that I wanted this one in particular on the YouTube channel, and I'll talk about that in just a second. And if you've enjoyed any of the Virtual Couch podcast material, please go like and subscribe and rate and comment and all those wonderful things that you hear all of the other podcast folks say. But that really is um, some sort of currency in the podcast world. So I would uh, I would love it and appreciate it if you would do that as well. So the reason that I wanted to record today, and, and actually I also appreciate, I got a couple of emails. I'm not going to say it was, I was overwhelmed like a lot of po- podcast uh, hosts will do, but I got a couple of emails that said, where were you last week? And I did not record. It was the first time since I started the Virtual Couch Podcast, I believe, that I went a week without recording. And it's almost been two years. And one of those initial goals that I had was to truly be consistent. Um, I can make excuses. I had a daughter get married the week before. It was an amazing experience. I hope to record about that in the near future. But uh, again, it was really about this particular video, and I wanted to record the video. If you've heard a couple of the episodes since I moved locations, there was a white noise machine that was in the background. When during the day as a therapist, it's, it's fantastic. When voices start to elevate, the white noise just kind of creates this buffer, and I share an office with some attorneys and a chiropractor and acupuncturist and that sort of thing. So if a couple are starting to get a little bit heated, or maybe somebody is is really upset, the white noise does an amazing job. But meanwhile, you could hear it in the background of almost all of my podcasts, actually all of my podcasts. And so I wanted to do this video and uh, and I was on it. I was on the task. We had tracked down a way to turn off the white noise during the day, but then that just took a little bit more time. So uh, I just used all of those excuses as well as I'm overdue on a book deadline. And we'll talk about that more down the road. I'm really excited about a, a book opportunity and uh, that was due a week or so ago. So trying to finish that up as well. So all of these perfect excuses um, came to a head and uh, I did not record last week. But here we are. And again, the reason why the video part of this, I, I think, is uh, something that I really wanted to do is today I'm talking about reaction videos. Now, I'm going to do a reaction audio, I guess. I want to read something here in a bit and uh, I want to react to it. And if you don't know anything about reaction videos, I have to tell you, I didn't very uh, very many weeks ago as well, and this is again one of those times where I sound like an old man. I want to tell everybody to get off my lawn um, because I did not know much about reaction videos. And even this morning, there was an amazing basketball, a couple of basketball games yesterday, a couple of game sevens if you're an NBA fan, 
And, uh, and I was even looking at some videos on YouTube this morning while I was eating some breakfast here in the studio. And, uh, and even there was a couple of things there where one of the hosts that I really enjoy, it, it said, here's his reaction, um, reaction video of the, of the game yesterday. And so it, I know it's kind of like this buzzword thing. Um, but reaction videos have been around for a long time. And if you haven't, again, if you have anyone that is under the age of probably 20, go ask them about reaction videos. And I'm sure that they will have an opinion. Either they're a fan of them or they're not. And so I've done a lot of digging around reaction videos. Why are reaction videos so popular? And if you start to go on this wormhole, um, I apologize for doing that. Uh, I started watching old people, like the elderly reacting to young kids' videos. Um, I started, there are, there are channels where people react to movie trailers, so not you can't. It's not just enough to watch the trailer, but now you want to watch someone react to the trailer. And so I was just fascinated by why these things were a big deal. So here was what I wanted to do today. First, I wanted to dig in and find a little bit of the science of why we care so much about reaction videos. And then there is a, and I don't, I, maybe it's not this uh, hot take that's going around, but there's an article in the therapist world that is talking about why people lie to their therapist. So I thought what I would do is I would not read the article ahead of time, and uh, I will. React. So I thought it would be kind of fun to have the video of that as well. And I'm probably going to make fun of that a little bit too. And I'll, and I'll explain that uh, as well. But before I even get to the reaction video part, I forget, I don't forget, but, but now, you know, this is episode 127. And, uh, so sometimes, and I never wanted to be this guy who would go back and say, you know, on episode 54 of my podcast, I believe I said, because I won't even go back and listen to him. But so I have people that bring up things often. I was sitting in a meeting, oh, it was a couple of days ago, and someone brought up something and they looked over at me to validate them. And it was in the moment and it really wasn't the setting to kind of um, not validate them. But they talked about having a challenge and overcoming a habit. So they looked over at me and said, uh, uh, Tony, you know better than anyone that uh, it takes 21 days to create a new habit. And I want to say, I, I recorded a whole podcast on this, that kind of debunking that myth. But I remember that was a mere year and a half ago. And I don't even know if this person in this room has ever listened to my podcast. I know that they, they know of the podcast. They're one of those who have in the past said, uh, you still doing that podcast thing? So um, I know that, uh, that everyone doesn't go back and listen to all of the back catalog. So before we even start with the reaction videos, I, I do want to bring up again, just for fun, um, the science behind how long does it actually take to form a new habit. And the article even says, backed by science. And this is by someone named James Clear, um, and it's talking about behavioral psychology. So this all stems back to, and here's the fun part, is even the stuff that I go, cause I, I get to speak about this a lot, and even the things that I say I couldn't find in this article. So I might have even been playing my own game of telephone and not doing this data justice. But here is where 21 days to create a new habit comes from. Um, Maxwell Maltz, a plastic surgeon in the 1950s, began noticing strange patterns among his patients. When Dr. Maltz would perform an operation, like a nose job, for example, he found that it would take a patient about 21 days to get used to seeing their new face. This was anecdotal. He was starting to, to just take notice. Similarly, when a patient had an arm or a leg amputated, Maxwell Maltz noticed that the patient would sense a phantom limb for about 21 days before adjusting to a new situation. And uh, I, I think that this has nothing to do with that, but... If you have your phone on vibrate constantly, anyone else just feel like your phone is vibrating constantly, but your phone is not in your pocket? Just me? Um, so Dr. Maltz, though. So, and here's the part where I was playing a game of telephone. The initial story around Dr. Maltz that I heard was that he was uh, on the battlefield, that it was a plastic surgeon that had gone to the, to war, which I can't lie. Part of me was like, uh, I wonder why, you know, that the, you had a plastic surgeon on the battlefield. Although I know that plastic surgeons are obviously trained. Um, as skilled surgeons. So I assumed that was the case. But I found nothing in here that talked about Maxwell Maltz being a on the battlefield. Um, but these experiences of noting that it took 21 days to adjust to a new limb or just a new face, a new situation, prompted Maltz to think about his own adjustment period to changes in new behaviors. And he thought to himself, it takes me about 21 days to, uh, to form a new habit. So then Maltz wrote about these experiences and said, and I quote, these and many other commonly observed phenomena tend to show that it requires a minimum note that word, a minimum of about 21 days for an old mental image to dissolve and a new one to gel. So in 1960, Maltz published that quote and other thoughts on behavioral change in a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. It's still available. You can uh, download it on audiobook and the whole nine yards. And the book went on to become a blockbuster hit, and boy, did it selling 30 million copies. Back in the 60s, that's insane. And that is when the problem started. So in the decades that followed, um, Maltz's work was then uh, heralded, um, recounted, 
quoted by everybody. And in this article, they talked about professionals from Zig Ziglar to Brian Tracy to Tony Robbins. And uh, and here's where it said, many people recited Maltz's story like a very long game of telephone and began to forget that he said a minimum. There we go. A minimum of 21 days and shorten it to it takes 21 days to form a new habit. And that is how society started spreading the common myth that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. And so how long does it really take on the article that I did or the podcast I did a year and a half or so ago? um, I actually found some data that showed it was a really long bunch of studies that had gone on to show that uh, it was showing about 180 days. So it could be even up to six months, which some people were frustrated with. But this one shows uh, and this just shows you there's there's a lot of data out there. Data that can make you happy, data that might make you sad. This one might be as in the middle. If it's, uh, okay, 21 days, and we'll talk about why that's significant, not to fuse to that. Um, what's wrong with me? I've done something for 21 days and it didn't stick. Versus uh, Philippa Lally, a health psychologist researcher at University College in London, published a study in the European Journal of Social Psychology where they decided they would figure out how long it takes to form a habit. So um, they studied a number of people over a 12-week period. Each person shows one new habit for the 12 weeks and reported whether or not they did the behavior and how automatic the behavior felt. Some of the simple habits like drinking a bottle of water with lunch and others were running for 15 minutes before dinner. At the end of the 12 weeks, the researchers analyzed the data to determine how long it took each person to go from starting a new behavior to automatically doing it. And the answer was, drum roll please, on average, they concluded it takes more than two months before a new behavior becomes automatic, 66 days to be exact in their research. And, uh, So, in other words, set your expectations appropriately. The truth is it could take you anywhere from two months up to even in their studies. They saw it, uh, some people, it took um, up to 254 days to form a new habit. So, anywhere from two months to eight months to build a new behavior into your life, not 21 days. And the other significant piece of that data is researchers found that missing one opportunity to perform the behavior did not materially affect the habit formation process. In other words... It's okay if you mess up every now and again. You don't have to be perfect in that time frame for that new habit to gel. But the significance there as well. Why do I bring that up? Why does it come up in in therapy? It comes up in therapy often because I work with people that are trying to change. So whether they're trying to change thought processes, whether they're trying to start exercising, eating better, that sort of thing. When it goes past the 21-day mark and someone says, hey, I, you know, I've been trying running for three weeks. It doesn't feel good now. I must, and again, anything that goes back to the something must be wrong with me story in our brains, that is where I want to dig in a little bit deeper. Because no, we're not saying that something is wrong with you. We are saying that, all right, now we have new data and what do we do with that information? So let's get to, so I hope that makes sense. So now we will remember it's episode something a year and a half ago in episode 127. Um, talk a little bit about the, the data or around um, habit change. So if you are trying to run, if you're trying to eat better, if you're trying to do push-ups, if you're trying to do whatever, uh, just start. Just start, and, it, and it's going to probably take a little bit longer than you had anticipated, but nothing is wrong with you if you blow past the three-week mark and you still think, I don't enjoy doing this. All right, so today's topic, and uh, let, me, uh, let me grab a little drink here. Hold on. Um, this is something I probably could have edited out, but uh, don't know how to on the video. Hold on. Okay. Reaction videos. Again, you may think, who cares? Just get to the data because there's some interesting stuff here on why people lie to their therapists. But go go take a look at reaction videos on YouTube. Here we go. Um, why, why the reaction videos? Why do they matter? The data, the only researcher or information I could find, which was fascinating, says that we could explain away the popularity of these videos as just kids being kids, youth being youth. But science has a deeper explanation that might have to do with empathy, which is what I love talking about on the Virtual Couch Podcast, and what are called mirror neurons. Now, where do we where do we talk about mirror neurons? Many episodes ago, I did a study, an episode on highly sensitive people, HSPs. Also, the scientific name for that was sensory processing sensitivity, SPS. And in sensor, again, if you are not familiar with HSP, I will recommend. Please go back and find that episode. It was uh, it was episode. I think 100 and something with uh, with Nikki Eisenhower. She was the guest. But HSPs, the theory, the concept here is that about 15 to 20 percent of the population basically feel they feel things more intensely. And and the problem is that 15 to 20 percent, it's too large of a number to be considered a disorder, but it's not a large enough number for more of the population to understand uh, what, what is going on with someone who just kind of feels more. These are people that often feel the, the emotions of others. They may feel more empathic. They more fit, may, may feel more intuitive. And there's data to back it up. These are people that are often referred to as shy or introverted. These are people that will observe a situation before going in. And over time, 
and we're not sure chicken or the egg, um, but their brains kind of process things differently. So they may feel a room. They may feel um, the, uh, the emotions of someone else more intently. So when they are being told throughout their lives, don't worry about it, get over it, don't cry about it. Basically, they're being told the what's wrong with them story, when in actuality, that may be um, one of their gifts, as Nikki likes to call it, one of their superpowers, that this is an ability to feel, to understand, to empathize with more. I found some really fascinating research I don't think I've had a chance to talk about on a podcast, but if you go deeper, if you find a culture where someone was perhaps never told, don't worry about it, just get, o- you know, just get over it, don't cry about it. And that was, that was kind of nurtured from the time this person was young. If they were looked at, set aside as that person in the village feels more, and isn't that amazing that this person becomes one of the, the wise men or the wise women of the village. They are, people are brought before them to kind of understand, you know, will a marriage work? You know, will this relationship work? Because they feel, they get a sense for people. And since the, that, that podcast, that's one of those where I can honestly say that I have received dozens and dozens and dozens of emails of people saying, I never knew what HSP was. I never knew there was such a thing as a highly sensitive person or sensory processing sensitivity. But that was a two or three minute digression. The reason I talked about that is these con- this concept of mirror neurons. I wanted to go find out what makes someone a highly sensitive person. And there are some theories there about these same things that cause us to, to care about reaction videos, these things called mirror neurons. In the 1990s, so kind of new in the world of uh, research, right? A group of Italian researchers discovered that when macaw monkeys reached for food, this is where the video, the YouTube comes into play. I just reached for food. Um, so I guess if you have uh, heightened mirror neurons and you're watching this video, I wonder if you have reached for food as well. So when, uh, when macaw monkeys reach for food, certain neurons light up in its brain. Those same neurons light up when the monkey sees a human reach for food. And so I, I did do a little bit more digging on this back in the HSP days. And uh, some of the monkeys don't care. Other monkeys, they do. They, they kind of mimic the behavior of the human that is in front of them. So later named mirror neurons, some believe these cells are active in human brains as well. But I will be uh, completely honest. The research I found earlier did not say this next part. But in this one, it says their existence is controversial. Some studies, has a link to the studies, question if they are even present in the human brain at all, while other studies have found evidence of their activity, but can't say for sure how they work in humans. But the concept there is these mirror neurons um, cause someone who has heightened mirror neurons, more mirror neurons, uh, more keenly um, aware mirror neurons to mirror the emotions of the person that they are in front of or that they are watching. And so whether they are watching a, a movie, whether they are in a group full of people, or they're watching a video on YouTube of someone reacting, they feel it more. Now, I also tried to find a little bit more to that before we get to the reaction of why do people lie to their therapists. So I I did an episode a while back on um, kind of the shared experiences. So there are a couple of other theories here that have to do with these reaction videos as well. One of them is how often have you gone to a friend and you have maybe wanted to share a video with them, you, or maybe you even want to share something on their phone. Look what my cute nephew did. Uh, look what my dog did. And you want to share it. You want to experience that with them. And what's that about? I mean, you really are wanting to kind of watch how they react or process this thing that was important to you. So in the world of kind of, you know, I love to talk about it, EFT, emotionally focused therapy, these emotional bids where we are going to show someone a little bit of our heart, kind of that same concept. We're saying, hey, person, friend, uh, acquaintance, let me watch, let me show you this video that's important to me and let me see how you're going to react to it and let's have a shared experience. So, so there's one concept of why people do enjoy also these reaction videos. And then there's another camp that believes that, uh, that this is wanting to just watch someone, you know, kind of not just from the shared experience of all, oh, let me, let me let you in. But it's like, Hey, this is the way I reacted to something. Now I want to see how you react. And a lot of times that might be something scary, something funny, those sort of things as well. But so kind of a similar vein. So we've got this concept of mirror neurons. We've got this concept of, oh, let me show you, you know, this video of my puppy. Um, uh, I don't know, nestling a chicken or something like that. Um, I don't know if that one's really one that would uh, cause us to go, oh, unless it's a little puppy and a tiny chicken. And maybe that's the whole point. Or it's, uh, okay, watch this. And, and this one's going to freak you out. So, so that has, again, led to a lot of these reaction videos. I have to tell you, too, I watched... Um, 
you know, there's just so much stuff around all the superhero movies, and uh, I like them. I, I don't necessarily follow them as well. I don't know if that's my ADD that kind of gets in the way, or you know, and I, I but I enjoy origin stories. Maybe that's a psychologist in me. But then when everybody starts fighting everybody and the stories get complex, I get a little bit lost. Um, but I'm a big Spider-Man fan, and there was a there was a trailer that came out a couple of days ago of a new Spider-Man movie that's coming out. So when I was when I was looking up reaction videos, one of the most popular videos of the last few days was a celebrity director watching the trailer of the Spider-Man video. So I thought, okay, as I'm preparing for my own reaction video, I'll watch this one. And uh, I, I wasn't necessarily getting that that thrill out of it because there was a lot of him going, whoa, no way. And so then I talked to a couple of people about that and some love watching someone that they uh, care about going, whoa, no way. And other people think, ah, oh, I'm waiting for him to really have some commentary on it. So let's talk about uh, reaction video too. Why do people lie to their therapist? There are four reasons that people typically lie to their therapist. This is by Sue Colode, PhD. So uh, Dr. Colode, why would somebody lie to their therapist? Um, and I'm telling you, I haven't read, I haven't read more than the first paragraph. So here comes the reaction. Why would they? I've thought about it a lot, and I'm kind of curious what the four reasons are. Why would somebody lie to their therapist? Totally counterproductive, right? Um, according to Dr. Kolod, you're paying for it, so what would be the point? However, according to a study published in 2016 in Counseling Psychology Quarterly of 547 adult psychotherapy clients, and what would you guess? Right now, just think, what would you guess the percentage of people that lie to their therapist would be? I went in kind of assuming, actually, I can't lie. I kind of assume that most all of us do, because you know, I did an episode on lying, compulsive lying, pathological lying back in the day. And there's some research, some data that say that uh, on average, I think the average person lies, I think it said between like seven and 12 times a day, some of the lies. And these are lies of omission, um, theft of the truth. They're uh, white lies. Do I look good in these jeans? What did you think about that meal? Those sort of things. Um, so this said that 93% reported lying to their therapist at some point. And and even uh, Dr. Kolod said as well, this is in part has to do with the nature of truth, with, which is never quite black and white. In fact, in therapy, truth is something that emerges over time. And I think that is a wonderful point. And again, I read this first paragraph. So um, truth is something that emerges over time when there is a trusting relationship between therapist and patient. So why do people lie to their therapist? First reaction is the thought of, the, I, and again, I don't have the data to back this up, but I've quoted it many times. I've heard other therapists do the same. But when it comes to your relationship with your therapist, nothing is more important than you feeling comfortable with your therapist. That relationship between client and therapist is more important than the actual modality that the therapist chooses to use. So that goes back to if you don't feel like a connection or comfortable with your therapist, you have all the right in the world. Again, you're paying for it and you want help to seek another therapist. In the therapist world, it's okay. I'm not saying we're used to it, we're human, but that's part of the way things work. You want somebody to feel a connection with you because if they don't feel a connection with you, they are not gonna open up. And the purpose of therapy, and man, I don't think this is even stated enough, is you need as a client that person, that guy, that girl, that person that you can go to and just process anything. Because we all have some of the some crazy thoughts at times, or there are things that we've done, and, and there's reasons why we've done them, and we need somebody that we can bounce that off of. So, uh, so that is um, kind of around that concept of building the rapport, and that truth emerges over time. So here we go. The number one, um, and it's not like they're in order. If they were, I would do the clickbait. Uh, four reasons why people lie to the therapist, and you're not, not going to believe what number three is. And we'll see what number three is. But the first thing that uh, Dr. Colo mentions is shame and fear of judgment. Okay, I totally get where we're going here. She says the most common reason why patients lie to their therapists is the same reason that people lie to those close to them, shame and fear of judgment. Man, oh man, here's where, uh, okay, well, let me finish reading the paragraph. Um, this is the, the lies could be about substance use, sexual or romantic encounters, feeling that they feel bad about even unusual thoughts that they're having. Oh, there's that. Uh, we all have kind of crazy thoughts, right? Um, man, this is a reaction video, totally unscripted. So I have to say, one of the things I love to do whenever I get a chance to speak is talk about this concept called inappropriate thought syndrome. Inappropriate thought syndrome, um, it's the thing where, have you ever been driving down the road and all of a sudden you think, man, what if I you know, veer my car into the other lane? Or the one that I always like to talk about is if I go stay anywhere that is up on a high building, I can often think of, well, being more specific, uh, we love staying at uh, one of those hotels. Um, where they have like the inner courtyard and you got maybe five or six levels up and we'll kind of be looking over the balcony and I always think, I could totally just jump right now. Now, have I ever jumped? No. Will I ever jump? I sure hope not because I, I really enjoy uh, life and, and those kind of things. 
but it'll just give me that rush, that adrenaline rush. My legs will get a little bit weird, but it's so inappropriate thought syndrome says there's three tenets of it. The first one is that everybody has crazy, irrational, inappropriate, uh, you name it, uh, sexually wild, uh, whether violent, you name it, thoughts. We all have them. The brain will just throw them up on, on the screen. Um, but the, but there's number one. Number two is just because we have those thoughts does not mean that we are a bad person or that we are going to act on those thoughts. That pure and simple. Nothing's wrong with you. That is just the way the brain will work. And here's the third part is thought suppression doesn't work. As a matter of fact, this is, okay, watch this. If you're watching the video right behind me here, clay polymer brain um, that a client made for me. The brain is holding a fishing pole right now. And... The fishing pole is for acceptance and commitment therapy. That fishing pole was holding a thought. But uh, look what the little sign this person's holding is. Uh, the brain is holding. Okay, I'm, I'm going to I get to go right up to the HD camera right here. Um, this clay polymer brain is holding a sign that says this. So thought suppression. When you're thinking, ah, don't think that thought, your brain says, I, I would say, has a little sign. It says what, this thought right here? So we're like, wait, I can't be thinking that. And then your brain's like, wait, this so when you're working with inappropriate thought syndrome, one of the best things you can do is just to be able to kind of step back and say, all right, I see what you're doing there, brain. Think you can get me on that one? Not today. Try again. So um, where did that start? Uh, shame, fear of judgment, um, thoughts. Here we go, unusual thoughts they're having. But let's hit that shame concept again too. So big, big difference between shame and guilt, right? Um, and, I, and again, one of these uh, drums I like to beat Shame uh, versus guilt. Guilt. There is a, uh, a, a, a person I really enjoy. The they, they're a spiritual leader. Talks uh, that they give. Uh, a gentleman named Tad Callister loves to say that guilt is a stop sign. Guilt is something that will say. I, I often give uh, probably not the best examples, but guilt will come up if you left. I don't know why I always go with your, you forgot to pick up your grandma. You left her at the mall. I don't know. You told her grandma will be back in an hour. You forget. That's guilt. I feel bad. Shame says. You're a horrible person. Shame speaks to your character. Shame says, shame questions your character. Guilt questions an activity. And uh, so we, we all do things that we, we maybe um, wish we wouldn't have done or things that we uh, could have done better. We have a little bit of guilt around that. I still, even the word guilt is still a bit heavy, but when you separate it from guilt and shame, um, we can see that shame is the thing that is a, a real negative. Shame tells us that we're a horrible person. And when we get stuck in a shame spiral, that's when we really truly feel bad about who we are as, a, as an individual, as a core human being. So um, again, back to why do people lie to the therapist? Shame and fear of judgment. Uh, she goes on to, let's see, in the article, okay, again, reading this in the wild, she gives, <clears throat> excuse me, an example. Dan, a man in his mid-30s, <clears throat> here's a problem with trying to record a video live, <clears throat> allergy season in the Sacramento Valley, and uh, it's, it's really been getting to me, and he even took my inhaler before. Not normally uh, an inhaler kind of guy. Um, but boy, that just got me there. Here we go. Dan, a man in his mid-30s, was often attracted to men who were inaccessible. With such partners, there were a few exciting encounters that didn't lead to a real relationship and left him feeling empty and lost. When he became involved with a straight man from a religious family, his therapist expressed these concerns to Dan, who experienced this as judgmental. Uh, okay, I see where she's going there. So the example she's giving is where the therapist is trying to maybe do a little bit of uh, reflective listening um, with uh, his client, and the client then takes it as shameful. So um, Dan experienced this as judgment. Without even realizing he was doing so, Dan stopped reporting his encounters with this man to his therapist. Eventually, it came out that he'd been omitting this topic in their sessions, and then they were finally able to address the feelings of being judged. So, um, man, that one brings up some stuff, too. Uh, again, I'm reacting. Are we, I'm reacting here to this. Uh, I don't think in the reaction videos they usually say, watch me react now. Um, but what comes up to me here is just that feeling of being judged. I had a client once tell me, and uh, this one broke my heart a little bit, um, but the person just said, they came in, it had been a few weeks, I, I saw them regularly at this time, and they just said, yeah, you know, um, remember that time where you told me you didn't really like my hair? And, and I was like, I mean, there's jokes there. If you're watching the video, I have no hair. I mean, I like anybody's hair. Um, but I, this is one of those things where at my core, if you know me and, and go into my core values, there's, that's just not something I would ever say in my entire life. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, the thing, if like, if somebody says, uh, Hey, uh, I saw you, you know, I, I saw you at a bar drinking and you are a complete, you know, believe in abstinence of, of alcohol and any other beverage or that sort of thing uh, to that regard. 
and you know, no, no, that wasn't me. And they're like, no, it's fine. I saw you. It's no big deal. Your secret's safe with me. You're like, no, like that's not it. Um, that was one of these experiences where the woman said, you know, when that time you told me you didn't really like my hair, I was like, no, no. But here was that person. She, she perceived this as judgment. And so a lot of times that is going to be the case where unfortunately we're going to view things through our own lens. And so that is one of those things that could cause someone to lie to their therapist. So if she feel, I mean, I believe um, this woman in particular, she, I'd noticed there've been a couple of sessions where it didn't necessarily feel as kind of connected. And now to learn that she had felt judged by my telling her I didn't care for her hair, which I really did not do. I could never quite figure out where that one came from. But, um, so, oh, you know, and I don't know if this is the point to kind of talk about this, but one of the things that's just been blowing me away again, I've been doing this for about 15 years now, but the last year or two in particular, and this all started where I had a daughter of mine who was doing a report at school and she asked me, what, how does, how does someone know someone who evaluates people? Like, how do they know, for example, when someone is trying to get the uh, claim insanity as a defense and the person might be in the courtroom. And again, if you go dig this up on YouTube, which I did at one point during this time, you'll find plenty of examples of this where someone is you know, barking like a dog in the courtroom, or they're just uh, kind of acting all, uh, they're acting out in the courtroom, but yet they're deemed sane for trial. Yet someone who just kind of sits there um, can be deemed insane and, uh, and kind of uh, said that they can't testify in their own regard, that sort of thing. And so I was able to talk off the record with the forensic psychologist. I, I want to get one on my podcast, by the way, because this would be fascinating, but most of them that are working in the system really don't want to go on record and talk about things, which I thought was, but I, but I can understand. Um, I can empathize with. But this person told me that when you have interviewed a thousand people to try to deem, you know, is something sane or is someone insane or insane, that over time, over 20, 30 years, you just, it starts to stand out like a sore thumb, the things to look for, the things that become very evident of what is, um, you know, what kind of makes or, or, or deems that person sane or insane. And and I have to tell you, here's here's where I was going with this, is that it, it's hard because when you're kind of when you when someone isn't telling you the truth in therapy, um, and there are people I'm sure that that don't tell me the truth all the time. But when you've done this for a while, you do start to feel like you're kind of picking up on things, picking up on uh, visual cues when people look away, when people look down, you know, when they look you in the eye versus when they don't, and just some of the things where over time, when you just see some of the repetitive patterns that people do when they when they maybe aren't necessarily comfortable or feel like telling the truth or it's hard for them to tell the truth. So um, again, the, throughout this entire video or this uh, podcast, my, my challenge or encouragement is going to be tell the, you know, tell the truth, find a connection with your therapist and really tell the truth. All right. Number two, I'm going to have to <laughs> speed these up a little bit. Um, no truth without trust. So no truth. Okay. Number two reason why people lie to their therapist, no truth without trust. Okay. I see where we're going here. Um, she says in therapy, you reveal painful and sensitive feelings and memories the, she says, quote, basic rule of therapy is to say whatever comes to mind. This is a lot more difficult than it sounds, especially if you have a history of betrayal and difficulty trusting people. Amen. Boy, I feel this. I really do. Um, I, I, Boy, this one hits me all the time. I, you get people in here that are coming in to see you because of either the betrayal of a spouse or um, they've never they've had trust issues growing up uh, or, you know, there's just been a lot of things where the, they have felt like they can't trust people. And then all of a sudden, hey, I'm a stranger and I know that you just uh, met me, but trust me. I mean, so I totally get that. And that's part of that building the rapport. So if you don't feel a connection with the therapist, then, and especially if you're dealing with trust issues, of course, that's going to be difficult. And, uh, and I can understand that. So um, she says, it's imperative that trust is established early on. You should feel that the therapist respects you and is open to criticism. I love that too. I'm telling you, uh, and I think this is something that develops over the years, hopefully with a good therapist, but I don't believe I could necessarily be offended. I'm not saying that uh, that's a challenge to my clients. Um, but, uh, because that's what my job, my job is to, to play that. I'm the person in the room where I want them to let me know, man, that, I, that feels really harsh. Or I, why did you say that? Or I, you know, I don't know, tell me where you're going with that, but give, give that information in the room. Uh, the therapist needs to be open to criticism because that therapist is a person. I love it. I had a woman that I worked with for a long time that came to me and she said, I have trust issues with men. So I specifically picked you as a male therapist because I at least need to explore what that's all about. I feel that she and I went on to have a very trusting relationship and, uh, and she's done some incredible work as well. So um, often the relationship with the therapist becomes emotionally charged. At times you may feel that you love or even hate your therapist. 
these intense feelings are difficult to state openly. And, uh, and I, and I could, uh, yeah, I, I felt that I felt that in the room at times where people are like so grateful because they have finally opened up and it feels good to have a connection with somebody who is not judging them and who is validating them and who can help them put the pieces together. And there are other times where you, you don't even realize as a therapist, you might kind of take a step one way and, and that one really becomes triggering for someone and they can, they can just feel like, I can't believe you just said that. And I hope that they will bring that up in the room. And I've had a couple of those that are amazing too, where somebody just says, okay, that just made me really mad. And here's why. And, and I'm just you know grateful that somebody will do that. I mean, I always say, boy, she has another paragraph. The therapist should be easy to talk to and able to listen to you without judgment. If you notice that you feel mistrustful of your therapist, bring it up. And over time, if that feeling persists, it might be time to find a new therapist. It is only through a trusting relationship with a therapist that the truth will emerge. And that is, I think, the theme that is coming out today. Um, the therapist it needs to be your person. You know, I need to be I need to be that guy for my clients, the place to open up about anything and everything, because that, again, is part of the healing process. Uh, number three. Oh, this is a good one. I thought about this one. This is a good one. And another reason why people um, lie to their therapist. And again, uh, this article is by uh, Dr. Sue Colode. Number three, lying to yourself. Oftentimes a patient may intend to be truthful but is not ready to accept the truth about themselves or someone close to them. We all come into therapy with a sort of story or narrative about ourselves. And uh, as therapy progresses, the narrative starts to change as we begin to see new things about ourselves and others that we may not have been able or willing to see. Um, let me look at this next one really quick. Uh, okay. Oh, this, okay. Um, April came into therapy because she had been depressed for several months and didn't know why. She soon revealed a tumultuous relationship with her husband. She complained that he went out every night, came home late without any adequate explanation. One day she found a used condom in a waste paper basket. When she confronted her husband with it, he told her he was trying a new brand to see if it fit. April accepted this explanation without question. She told the therapist that her husband was completely trustworthy. When the therapist looked skeptical, April reassured her. To the therapist, it was obvious that April's husband was, uh, and I think it's funny, obvious, but uh, obvious that it was cheating on her and she was not ready to admit this to herself. In other words, she was lying to herself. Uh, to herself. Boy, that's a powerful example. And I can honestly say, unfortunately, I've had that example in uh, that one um, in uh, the several of those kind of similar examples. And it is hard to be in that position where you are opening up to someone and you, you don't, you kind of maybe know in the back of your mind, but you don't want that to be true. Um, you know, I've, I've dealt a lot with uh, when I'm people who are struggling with, um, you know, they're, they're trying to tell me that, hey, you know, my partner really isn't uh, emotionally or mentally abusive. And, you know, they may present a lot of things that, that kind of point in that direction, but then they always, but, but I mean, you don't understand. He really is a good guy. I get a lot of that. Um, you know, and, and I do work with uh, people who maybe struggle with their sexuality and they haven't felt comfortable about maybe talking about that. Um, that's one of those where I think sometimes people, I, I've had a lot of sessions where people kind of, um, have been telling themselves one story and, and not wanting to kind of get to the core of maybe the, the real issues that they're struggling with. So there are these, these, these situations where, that is the reason why um, a person is lying in therapy because they, they've they been kind of lying to themselves the whole time too. The beginning though, what I wanted to get back to is it says um, the person's not ready to accept the truth about themselves. So here's a little bit of a tangent. I hadn't planned on going down this path. So, you know, I do a lot of podcasts on um, narcissism. I do. It's a, it's a hot topic. And, uh, and anytime I do one and I mention that name, the downloads are, I mean, honestly, uh, tens of thousands of downloads more. It's, it's wild. And especially if I bring up the term gaslighting. And so, and I've talked about it on several podcasts. So uh, what, what's, what's pretty interesting and, and me being completely vulnerable, my wife pointed out to me not too long ago of a time where she said, are you gaslighting me right now? And my first reaction was what, you know, and I thought, Oh, wow. I think, yeah, kind of am, you know, I'm kind of not validating your, what you're sharing with me. And I'm telling you why that is incorrect. And so some of that, you know, lying to myself, it's that concept of, do I ever do that? And it's like, wait a minute, I, I, I have done that. Okay, uh, while I'm being vulnerable, which that's the whole point of this podcast. And this is this is part of a bigger, I've, I've shared this on a couple of episodes, but this is a, an entire episode in itself that I, that I can't wait to get to, is when I'm dealing with sexuality in men. When I have guys come to me and they say, um, man, I think maybe they think it's because since I'm a guy therapist and they say, hey, uh, can you just let my wife know that, um, you know, when I'm happy, nothing is better than um, being intimate, uh, having sex, you know, and uh, if I'm sad, nothing gets us out of a hole, a dark hole than, than having sex. Or if I'm sick, nothing beats, um, you know, gets me out of the feeling sick, like sex, all this stuff. And then he looks over at me and like, you know, I've made it easy on her. Uh, can you can you kind of explain that to her? I've told her a whole bunch of times. And I look over at the wife and we'll say, all right, tell me what, what you're feeling right here. And, and a lot of times it's a tearful 
reaction where she will say, um, that that's, that's his happiness is, is in my, um, in my court that I'm responsible for all things happy to him. And, uh, and that, that conversation will typically go, all right, we need to start kind of changing that relationship with intimacy so that, uh, in a couple setting, they need to be able to hug and, and, and cuddle and watch TV together. And it doesn't mean that maybe it's going to lead to, to intimacy. Maybe it's going to lead to sex. And I remember one time going to my wife and, and saying, isn't this crazy? This stuff that I'm starting to find out. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, you totally do that. I was like, what? Um, you know, that was one of those, like, let me get some water in my mouth so I can do a spit take because I need this to be very dramatic when I say what? Um, but, and, and, and I love this. She kind of laid it out as, you know, if I, a couple of days, I'm being extra nice to the kids and then maybe helping out a little more at home and telling her that she looks amazing. And then maybe there, that would lead to intimacy, that sort of thing. And then, uh, and then the next day she's like, it's not like you're now, you know, kicking the dog or, or neglecting the kids, but just some of those things have kind of waned. Maybe the compliments are, have, have ceased that sort of thing. And so that's the one where it was like, I, that was one of, I was, I had been lying to myself. I was like, no, I don't do that, but wait, wait, maybe I do. And so then it was like, uh, okay, just trying to be more kind of present, more me, more complimentary, more, um, helping the kids all the time, that sort of thing. But so, but so I just kind of love that concept of where, um, you know, when people aren't necessarily that, that kind of, when you realize that maybe there is a behavior that I've been doing and, and you, you know, you kind of think, wait, that's not me, that, that concept of lying to oneself. And so that's one of the things I love about therapy in particular is when we feel when you watch somebody in the room kind of just open up and say, okay, I don't think I do that, but let's kind of explore, you know, or my partner has told me this. I started that whole thing with narcissism. So the gaslighting concept where, you know, most partners will immediately say, that's ridiculous. I don't do that. The couples therapy I do, emotionally focused therapy, EFT, it's designed to, if a partner says, hey, I think you're emotionally abusive, or hey, I think you're gaslighting me, um, the point is not to then turn around and say, wait a minute, you're doing that to me. It's it's saying, okay, tell me why you feel that's the case. Tell me, give me, give me your data. Tell me what that experience is like for you. Because we have to be able to have that open mind and just really recognize, okay, am I, am I doing this? Am I lying to myself? Um, all right, number four, the last reason on this article why people... Uh, lie to their therapist, not connecting the dots. All right, I would not have guessed that one. Okay, some patients may be less than truthful with their therapist, not because they intend to mislead or deceive, because they have not processed past traumas and are disconnected from the ways in which these traumas, okay, I see where we're going, are affecting their behavior. I call this not connecting the dots. Um, She says, for example, um, Misha was unable to commit to a relationship because he could never trust anyone enough to let down his guard. He did not disclose to the therapist that his mother suffered from alcoholism and was unreliable and emotionally unavailable, not because he wanted to be deceitful, but because he simply didn't see any connection. This is not lying per se, but an inability to connect the dots. Misha is aware that uh, he has difficulty trusting anyone and is also aware that his mother suffered from alcoholism, but kept these facts carefully separated from each other. Wow, I do. I see this one often. Um, if you if you saw or listened to the episode I had a few a couple of weeks ago with Julie Lee from the ICU podcast, she had an incredible point here where she had gone all through her teenage life and just not even concerned or worried about mental illness because she had had, I think she said, uh, a father who suffered with uh, bipolar disorder. And so all of her efforts had kind of been focused on him. And so um, when she started to have panic attacks and uh, severe depression, anxiety, when she, after she was married, started having kids, um, she had a therapist or two that she went to that said, could this be about your, your past, your childhood? And she's like, no, my childhood was, I was fine. What's going on now? And that was one of those where, um, you know, she realized that she had kind of been masking those thoughts or emotions with this focus on her dad. And so it's again, connecting those dots. So not, and I, and I like it. So it's not necessarily something where you're horrifically lying to your therapist, but it's like, no, it's not important. You know, you don't, you don't give me, um, which makes me think of a couple of things. Uh, I've had, I've had a couple of examples and one that comes to mind is uh, a woman who every time that her husband was getting ready to go out of town and I'm talking every time we could get a calendar out, we could, then she would have a panic attack. And I, I'm thinking this is a layup, you know, could it be because your husband's going out of town? No. I mean, it, what are you crazy? Of course it's not that, that I'm, he go, he can go whenever he wants. I, I, you know, it's matter of fact that it's better when he leaves, you know, that was the kind of the attitude I got. And, uh, it was like, wait, that is so, you know, connect those dots. And over time we did get to the point where she's like, yeah, okay, maybe there's some truth there because when he leaves and she felt, um, that her, her brain was telling her that she wasn't a good mom story. So that was one of those where connecting the dots or, or I have to tell you, there was a time years ago, years ago where I met with a couple and, uh, I mean, we were doing a pretty lengthy session. They had traveled pretty far to get to my office and, 
um, just a few minutes left to go. And, and one of them had opened up about a pretty serious traumatic brain injury that had occurred. And I remember just thinking, okay, a lot of the things that we just talked about for the last hour and a half sure feel like there's, you know, because there was this dramatic shift in the relationship, this change. Um, and uh, turns out that that had all kind of happened around the time of this traumatic brain injury. So I kind of feel like maybe that was connecting the dots. So, um, oh, I didn't even, I just thought of, okay, I didn't read the part that comes next. She says, can therapy be effective if you're lying? As stated above, the truth is not often black and white. There are always things in our lives which we disconnect, and some are more important than others. Things that may be too shame-inducing, embarrassing, or anxiety-provoking to reveal even to yourself or let alone to your therapist. If you're aware of something you're not disclosing, it's preferable to tell the therapist uh, that there are certain things you are unable to reveal this time. I love that. Thank you. Um, that is perfect. There are people that will often bring up the, you know, I, there's something I do want to get to at some point. I don't know if I'm ready right now. Absolutely no problem. And I don't view that as like, come on, tell me. Although in, I'm human. In my head, it's like, hey, sooner we get to that, the better. But I understand there's a process. Man, I'm glad she said that. So if there is something that you know that you need to get to, uh, you can, oh, yeah, you can see it. If I'm, I'm pointing right here, wait, where? That is the elephant in my room right there on the top uh, top shelf. So if they, let them know there's an elephant in the room. And I don't think we can talk about the elephant for a little while. But write down, elephant in room. We'll get to that. Um, that's beautiful. Because some issues, she says, take time. Um, she says, as with April, she and her therapist worked together over the course of several whoa, years before the truth emerged. And I do, I've got some, some, again, examples that are just flooding my head right now of, I remember one where I know, I know the person was not being truthful. And I remember just every time I would, uh, every few sessions, I would try to, Hey, tell me more about this particular time where you said these things. And, and finally, I got to the point where I was like, you know, I, if I'm being uh, authentic, I, I'm wondering if this could have been the case. And the person's like, and it was, you know, just even from their body language, from their facial expressions, it was, I, I knew, I knew, I did, that they were hiding something. And it did. It took a couple of years. And then uh, actually the person had not, I had not seen the person for a while. They came back and that's when they said, hey, uh, you were right back then. Um, I was hanging on to that. And I didn't say told you so, or I didn't, uh, why, why didn't you say back then? Because again, I understand it's all part of a process, right? So some issues take time. Um, it can take months or even longer for people to feel like they can really open up. So I really love that concept of let the therapist know that there's something that you would love to get to and it might be really difficult to get to. She says that if you find that there are more and more things you're hiding or lying about, it's important to address the issue with your therapist. In some cases, you may want to evaluate whether or not a therapist is a good fit. Um, but in other cases, simply raising the topic will help clarify and alleviate the obstacles that prevent you to, from being open. That's the article. Um, that's uh, So there's my reaction. The reaction of, whoa, um, I really enjoyed um, the reaction part to this. Uh, and I, I Sue Colo, PhD, I'll throw the link to that in show notes. But uh, kind of one more thought there on that line is uh, that it really, you know, kind of about uh, developing that relationship with your therapist. I do, I just want to, I can't emphasize that enough that if you don't feel like you have a good fit with your therapist, that's okay. Because we all have our own different, I mean, we're, we got the mirror neurons thing going, right? We're having these shared experiences. Uh, and so if you don't feel like that person really kind of gets you, that's okay. I think this is maybe a nice time to throw a little bit of a plug in there, or not a plug, but a differentiation between even therapy and coaching. Um, and I think that this is one of those things that's interesting too. Sometimes people do want to come in and I'll even call it motivational speaker mode. I, it's hard to not want to go into motivational speaker mode and let them know that, hey, this is going to help. You know, if you want to really open up and we can make some, take some uh, big strides here. And uh, so a lot of times coaching, which and I've had coaches on my podcast and there's some really amazing coaches. But a lot of times coaching is saying, hey, here's, here's a way to do something. Here's a solid way that I know can help a lot of people. And, uh, and so as a therapist though, you're still playing around a lot with that. Everybody kind of has their own individual, um, circumstances. I mean, that's, that's understated. They call them private experiences in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy, because you're the only person in the whole entire world on earth who has been, you know, has the same DNA. You're it, your DNA, nature, nurture, birth order, abandonment, um, uh, attachment, uh, parents, you know, dying, um, people alienating you, situations happening, accidents, the school you go to, your friend group, all these sort of things are, are what make you uniquely you. And so even when somebody says, here's a way to, to achieve a result, they mean well. I mean, I look at my, my Path Back program, the pornography recovery program, and I know that all those principles and concepts work. What I worry about are when someone then doesn't do one of them or bumps into one of those modules and it doesn't feel like it's that they're doing it right or that they understand what's going on, 
then here comes the brain doing the what's wrong with me story. And when the brain likes to do the what's wrong with me story, then it will, it's basically trying to do that path of least resistance and saying, Hey, this isn't going to work for me. And so a lot of times that's the way that, uh, if, if you're, if you kind of jump onto some online program, or that's why if you read a self-help book and you can feel like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then it's when you don't necessarily do it the way that that book or that program lays out that then we feel like, what's wrong with me? I just paid money for this thing. I didn't do it. I just read this book and everybody loves it and it didn't help me or it helped me. And then all of a sudden I'm not doing the thing. Um, that, uh, that that's part of just kind of this human experience and it's okay. Uh, and so that's the part where I would love for you to be able to go to a therapist and kind of share that. That's the data that I love as a therapist is the, okay, here's what you tried and, uh, tell me where things kind of maybe you didn't feel connected there. Tell me about when you didn't do the activity and let's explore that. And, uh, because that, those are the things that if you are lying to your therapist, then that's where you're going to end up having a, a, an exit to therapy as well, because Hey, now even therapy isn't working. Therapy can work um, if you really do kind of a- actively, intentionally work on that concepts that we that, that kind of I reacted to today of uh, of not lying to your therapist. So hey, I want to thank you for taking the time to um, be here on the virtual couch. Thanks for joining me on the video. If you uh, if you were on the video, if you weren't, um, go check it out. And uh, oh, I, I don't even know. I don't have this stuff on my YouTube video. I think if I was uh, like a nice um, YouTuber, I'd be pointing down at the screen and say subscribe and, and a bunch of other things like that. Uh, I don't know, maybe you can figure it out. Uh, hit the subscribe button. That'd be great. And share this if, uh, if you feel like it is worthy of sharing. And again, I appreciate you um, tuning in and I will see you next time on the virtual couch. Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grinding.